Today is Friday, October 1st. Look at that. It's October now. Unbelievable. Who would have thought? Friday, October 1st, a.k.a. the 25th day of Tishrei, 5782-2021. And we are going to momentarily jump into our Torah portion, which is Bereshis. We have four readings to cover, and they're long readings. So we're going to put on our, I don't know, our Torah hat, if such a thing exists, and get started. I'm going to share my screen. Let's welcome Sandrine, who's joining as we speak. Sandrine, hold on. Welcome, Sandrine. Sandrine, welcome. It's good to have you. Okay, I'm sharing my screen. Let's jump in. This is, for reference, Torah reading for Bereshit, reading number four, which is what we're up to, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. This is the aftermath of the sin of eating, the tree, of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil that Adam and Eve committed shortly after their, their emergence into, into reality. And, of course, the fallout we read about yesterday, Adam's fallout, Eve's fallout, the serpent's fallout, etc., Everyone, everyone uh, um, feels the pain of the indiscretion, and thus life as we know it begins. Verse 22, Now the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, having the ability of knowing good and evil. I'm going to explain this in a moment. And now, lest he stretch forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, God is concerned, so to speak, concerned, that now that the human being understands good and evil. So what's going to happen? What happens if they eat from the tree of life and live forever? It's going to be a problem. So we have to banish, as we'll see soon in the next verse, we have to evict Adam and Eve from the garden lest they eat from the tree of life. Let's read that inside 23. And the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, right? Sent him out, that's the eviction, to till the soil whence he had been taken. Um, basically, the task of mankind is to work the, the earth, either literally or metaphorically, which is where we come from, physically. And he drove, God drove the man out, and he stationed from the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim, cherubim are angels, and the blade of the revolving sword. That sounds like a, uh, a blender. To guard the way to the tree of life. Blade of the revolving sword, imagine a sword, like those like industrial big steel fans, perhaps. Um, guarding the way to the tree of life. There's so much symbolism here. And in the interest of time, I'll do a few ideas, but this is not the totality of what there is to talk about. These are just some short ideas. So number one, what does it mean that God is afraid that now that man has the ability to know good and evil, then they're also going to take, he's also going to take from the tree of life and live forever, and that's going to be a problem. What's, what's going, what does that mean? So let me give you a very quick angle on this. Knowing good and evil means, my, let, let me take a half a step back. Maimonides asked the question, Rambam, asked a, a, just an incredibly good question. He says, how is it possible that someone committed a sin and gained a reward in the process? doesn't make sense. If you do the crime, how can you get benefit? How can you get rewarded for the crime? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And that's what seems to happen here. Adam and Eve are eating from the forbidden fruit. And what's the consequence? They know good and evil. They have knowledge. Before, they didn't have knowledge. Now they have knowledge. It sounds like an upgrade. Through sin, there's an upgrade. What's going on here? There are different ways to answer the question, but I'll tell you what Maimonides says, which is, I always carry this with me. He said, they didn't gain anything. They lost. You see, before the sin, they also had knowledge, but a different type of knowledge. They knew right and wrong. There was right and there was wrong and it was clear this is right, this is wrong. Post sin, there's a new calculus. It's not just right and wrong, it's what feels good. It's what I like and what I don't like, which is a different metric. You tell a child um, you can't have candy. Can't have candy. The child says, but I like it. That's exactly what happened with the sin. right? God says there's truth and there's false. There's right and there's wrong. And then Adam and Eve said, sure, but I want to slice the world in a different way. Not right, wrong, but good, tasty, not tasty, which is a subjective experience. Does that make sense what I'm saying? 
So instead of defining it by right and wrong, objectively, now there's a subjective definition of what I like or what I don't like. That's not an upgrade, that's a downgrade. That's moving further away from absolute truth and more into ourselves. So what God is saying in verse 22, essentially, according to this understanding is, well, now that the human being is not governed by objective truth, but rather by subjective taste, well, if they live forever, they could forever be tasting the forbidden fruits subjectively that they think is good. So therefore, we have to introduce death into the world and have to make sure that Adam and Eve don't eat from this tree of life and live forever because there cannot be eternality to an element that has, to, to, an, to a reality that has an admixture of negativity. As long as there's purity and innocence, that, that could be eternal. Once you mix in some sort of sense of self and ego and a taste for the forbidden, you don't want that to live eternally because that means that evil will have eternal existence and that doesn't fly. So there has to be, so mortality is a direct result of mixing in this new calculus into the fabric of existence. Donna. I was under the impression that it was all good before they had the tree of life. You know, they had no knowledge of anything not good. And then the other thing is just, so what about righteous people, sodics? Is it because they have the animal soul, even though it doesn't expose itself, that they can't live forever? Good. Excellent question. Excellent question. So let me address each one um, one at a time. Number one, before the sin... Adam and Eve didn't have first-hand knowledge of evil, but they knew, based on what God told them, this is right and this is wrong. In other words, this is kosher, this is not kosher. This is what God wants, this is what God doesn't want. Right? This tree is good, this tree is not good. Sorry, I don't want to use the word good, because good's the new metric. This is, um, this is permissible. permissible, this is not permissible. So that's, that's how you divide the world. It's like you slice the world like this way, and then they ended up slicing it the other way. Doesn't matter which way, right? But it's like a different, it's a different cut. It's, I'm not looking at it through God's lens of right, wrong. I'm looking at it through my lens of good, not good. And good, not good is my own subjective definition now. It's no longer God's but right, wrong. Desire. The, sin, the sin itself, it's not about the fruit. The sin itself introduced the idea, this is what I like. This is what I want. This is what I think is good. Not what God thinks is right, but what I think is good. And that's a different, completely different scale of measurement. And that begins the corruption of the human being, so to speak, that must therefore come with mortality. Now your question is, what about a tzaddik who's perfect, who doesn't have, we would say, an active animal soul? So then why, why, um, why mortality for the tzaddik? The answer is even a perfect tzaddik still has a body. And the body itself has an admixture of, of, of good and the opposite of good. In other words, every physical entity has this mixture of a trace of evil. Since the sin of Adam and Eve, the serpent no longer is external, it's internal. There's always this, this somewhat even subtle mixture of negativity. Thus, that needs to be purged, which happens through death. So when the resurrection of the dead, which we're all experts in because we took that course, right, a few months ago, resurrection of the dead... The body comes back, but this time in purity and without the, uh, without the negativity. So that's kind of the distinction over there. Ray, jump in. Um, so let me ask you, before, before they ate from anything, were we not supposed to live forever in the Garden of Eden? We were. not ever? Yeah, yeah. It was, was supposed to be eternal life. And so the reason why that was canceled eternal life was canceled is because there was this mixture now of evil and that would give evil eternality as well and that's what and God does not want that or God does not allow that to happen so once evil gets mixed in it's not kosher anymore then it can't live forever Sarah Said. Sorry, I was trying to mute there. So yeah, I think no I remember you said it um, a while ago. It was confusion. It created like confusion within us. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. It created, yeah. In, in, in the language of Kabbalah, it created like a bilbul, like a mixture now of, of good and not good and what I like, what I don't like. And, it's, and it is confusing. Yeah, that, is, um, 
That is an accurate way of saying it. it there's a lot of confusion now. So I, I kind of know what God wants, but I also know what I like, and they're not the same all the time. And now there's this conflict, this inner conflict. And what it comes down to is that this conflict does not, cannot be allowed to exist eternally because the, the ultimate eternal end is holiness and not this complicated mixture of holy, unholy, good, bad, I like, I don't like type, uh, type confusion. So that's, yeah, yeah. So, uh, that's, that's one way to, to characterize it. Now, if we look at the verses here, still in this section that we just read, the end of chapter 3, so we see that God drives mankind out of the garden and then puts the blade of the revolving sword to guard the way to the tree of life. I want to switch gears a little bit and give you a bit of a different take on the tree of life. Tree of life is also a euphemism for Torah. Torah is Eitz Chaim He, is the tree of life for all those who hold on to it, and that's a reference to Torah. So the tree of life is the ultimate path of life. It's Torah, as we said today, you know, the year of the Torah, as I'm coining it. So the blade of the revolving sword is almost like, again, you have got, we have to move gears to a different, you know, a, a non-literal understanding of this, that sometimes the path to Torah study is paved in challenge. Sometimes it seems like there's a blade of the revolving sword that prevents us, stands between us and what our destiny is, Torah study, doing a mitzvah, etc. And we have to figure out a way to get past that blade, to get past that distraction and, uh, and sometimes obstruction to get to the truth. The reality is that doing the right thing sometimes comes easy, but most often does not come easy. Sometimes, sorry, most, most of the time, to do the right thing requires a lot of effort, a lot of perseverance, and a person might say, look, God, if this is what you want me to do, then why aren't you making it easier for me? Why are you making it harder for me? Why did you put the blade of the revolving sword in my way? If you really wanted me to go there, you would have paved it in gold. What's with the sword? No one, no one was promised an easy life. No one, I mean, since, right, we, we know the, the fallout of this was not to have an easy life. No one's guaranteed an easy life, even when it's something meaningful. So, lest we think that if I'm doing the right thing, it will come easy, the Torah reminds us, even the tree of life is guarded by the blade of the revolving sword. Not that we shouldn't get there, but that our getting there will require our true and fierce desire to get there. It will require commitment, perseverance, and an inner strength to get to that destination. All right, let's move on to chapter 4. Let's continue with basically what I would call the, um, the family tree, the generations. Now, the man knew his wife Eve. And of course, knew is a, is a euphemism for intimacy. The man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. And she said, I have acquired Kenisi, Cain. I've acquired a man with the Lord. And she continued to bear his brother Abel. That's son number two. And Abel was a shepherd of flocks, and Cain was a tiller of the soil. This will become very important. Abe, Abel, not Abe. Abel was a shepherd of flocks, Cain, a tiller of the soil. One was a, one was a shepherd, and one was a farmer. Now it came to pass, at the end of days, that Cain, not that end of days, but after a little while, that Cain, in other words, we're fast-forwarding a little bit here, that Cain brought of the fruit of the soil an offering to the Lord. So basically, Cain brought some of what he created through his work, right? Some of the fruit of the soil. He was a farmer. He brought it as an offering to God. And Abel, he too brought of the firstborn of his flocks and of their fattest. Now, so, so Cain, uh, the farmer, brought produce. And, and second, so the, the farmer brought the produce. And the shepherd brought some animals. The difference is that by Cain, it says he brought of the fruit. Doesn't specify what type of the fruit. Whereas Abel, the firstborn, the fattest, he brought the best. So one guy brought a token and the other guy really gave a gift. You know the, you know the story about the, chicken and the, the, the pig and the chicken? You know about this, the story? One of my favorite stories. I haven't told it in years. So this is, if you know my material, this is somewhat of the, well, it's like old school fresh. It's like a combo. It's like retro, but it's so retro, it's, it feels new. 
there was once a chicken and a pig that were walking down the road. And uh, there was a breakfast place that advertised bacon and eggs. Wow, look at that. The chicken turns to the, uh, to the pig and says, look, we're popular. Everyone loves us. They're serving at the restaurant bacon and eggs. Isn't that great? Doesn't that make you feel good? And the pig says to the chicken, are you kidding me? It makes me feel good. Are you kidding me? For you, it's a donation. For me, it's a commitment. And that's what it comes down to, right? Donation or commitment. Are you donating the egg or are you committing the bacon? I'm not advocating, by the way, things that are not kosher. It's a, just a joke. But the point, thank you. The, thank you, Sarah. The point is about donation or a commitment. So Cain brought of the fruit. But Abel gave the firstborn, the fattest, he gave the best. So what happens? Middle of verse 4, and the Lord turned to Abel and to his offering. So which one did God like? The commitment. But to Cain and to his offering, he did, he did not turn. And it annoyed Cain exceedingly, and his countenance fell. Let me give you different definitions here. He was angry and depressed. Psychologically, it makes sense, right? When somebody you believe does you wrong, you get angry, and then you get depressed. So anger, how dare you? Depressed, you know, no one likes me. These are the two emotional reactions that Cain is struggling with. And God, the first psychological counseling, uh, first counseling session in the Torah, the Lord said to Cain, why are you annoyed? Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Why are you sad? Is it not so that if you improve, it will be forgiven you? If you do not improve, however, at the entrance, sin is lying. And to you it is longing, but you can rule over it. God basically says to Cain, don't be angry and don't be, don't be angry and don't have self-pity. Stop it. If you want a different outcome, make a different choice. Create a different reality. You want your offering to be received? Don't blame, don't blame anyone else. Don't wallow in self-pity. Just give a better offering. That's it. The power is in your hands. Now this is, to me, one of the most powerful life lessons that we all are constantly needing to learn and relearn because it's not a one-time thing. Oh yeah, I, I learned this once, set. Life is a little bit more complicated than that. It's an ongoing process to remind ourselves. Instead of pointing fingers and blaming someone else for all the stuff that we don't like in our lives, right, this one's fault, that one's fault, the Torah reminds us all we need to do in this moment is make a good decision, is make a good choice and live the best life that we can live, the most noble life that we can live. God says to Cain, you're unhappy, your brother brought something better than you, you don't like the competition, don't look at anyone else. Just give the best you can. That's it. Nothing else is required. You make the choice that you need to make. Well, didn't work. And here we have another lesson. And that is, it could be the best counselor in the world, the best therapist in the world, God. Can't fix someone else for them. They have to choose to fix themselves. They have to choose to, to make a different choice. And in this case, Cain did not. So here we go. Verse 8, And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, in other words, he entered him in conversation as a, as a um, premeditated way of getting him out into the field. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel's brother and slew him. And the Lord said to Cain, okay, so he killed him. First murder in history. Frat, fratricide, I believe they call, they call it. Um, killing his own brother. And the Lord said to Cain, the murderer, where is Abel, your brother? Right? Like God said to Adam, where are you? I can't see you. And Adam was hiding. Of course he can. God knows, of course, what happened. Where's Abel? And he said, Cain said, I do not know. Famous words, am I my brother's keeper? Again, talk about not taking responsibility. Right? Remember, that's the theme. Right? Adam points fingers. Eve points fingers. Cain now points fingers. Says, you're asking me? I'm responsible for this guy. He's living his own life. Meanwhile, he knows exactly where he is. He killed him. And he said, God said, what have you done? 
Hark, your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. And now, says God to Cain, you are cursed even more than the ground, which opened its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. The earth, which concealed your murder, right? On some level, that earth is cursed, on some level. But you are even more cursed than the ground. When you till the soil, in other words, this is going to be an even worse curse than what God told Abraham about the earth, that he's going to have to work the earth. It's going to, um, for Cain, it's going to be worse. When you till the soil, it will not continue to give its strength to you. You shall be a wanderer and an exile in the land. The land is not going to house you and make you comfortable. You will always feel unsettled. And Cain said to the Lord, Is my iniquity too great to bear? In other words, you're giving me too much of a punishment. You're killing me. Behold, you have driven me today off the face of the earth. You're, you're destining me to be a wanderer. You're, that's it. And I shall be hidden from before you, and I will be a wanderer and an exile in the land. And it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. So his plea to God is, I, 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 he's now kind of taking responsibility, but really saying the punishment is too, bit, is too big. It's too harsh of a punishment. And God backs off a little bit. And the Lord said to him, said to Cain, Therefore, if you're worried about um, retribution, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be, brought, will be wrought upon him sevenfold. In other words, I promise you that I forbid anyone from harming you, and anyone who does, they're going to get punished severely. And the Lord placed a mark on Cain that no one who find him slay him. Some say that God inscribed his name in his forehead. Whatever it was, some sort of inscription, some sort of mark on Cain that told everyone, hands off. And Cain went forth from before the Lord and he dwelt in the land of the wanderers to the east of Eden. Back to, oh, not back, sorry, and Cain. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Chanoich, Enoch, Chanoich, and he was building a city, and he called the city after the name of his son, Chanoich. He would be Cain. Cain was building a city. So Cain not only gave birth to a child named Enoch or Chanoich, but he also called the city that he built the same name. And who was Enoch's child? Irad. Irad was born to Enoch, and Irad begat Mechuyael, and Mechuyael begat Meth. Mesushael and Mesushael begot Lamech. So we have all these generations post Adam, post Cain. So again, if you want to know the generations, Adam, Cain, Enoch, Erod, Mechuyael, Mesushael, and Lamech. Those are seven generations. Lamech is seventh generation from Adam. Let's continue reading number five. And Lamech took himself two wives. Lamech now seven generations in. He took two wives. One was named Ada, and the other was named Tzila. Now Ada bore Yaval. Who was Yaval? He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have cattle. He was the father of nomadic cattle rearing. He was the first one who was a nomad raising cattle. And his brother's name was Yuval. We have Yaval and Yuval. So Yaval was the nomadic cattle rearer, and Yuval, he was the father of all who grasp a lyre and a flute. So he was a musician, and he was the creator of musical instruments. And Sila, so that's all the sons of Lemech, again, seven generations from Adam, Lemech, Lemech's wife, Ada. What about Sila? He had another wife, Sila. And Sila, she too bore him Tuvalkayin who sharpened all tools and that cut copper and iron. And Tubakayan's sister was Naama. By the way, Naama is very important because Naama, I believe, was the wife of Noah, of Noah's Ark. Now you know where she comes from. Now let's get back to these characters in this reading. Short reading, but a lot of characters. You have one guy who's the father of nomadic cattle rearing. You have the other guy who's a musician. And you have another guy who created 
sharpens tools that cut copper and iron. And our sages tell us, the commentators explain, I'm not going to show you Rashi, but it's in Rashi and others. Rashi says that all of these were considered to be advancements, societal, technological, right, sociological advancements. The idea of cattle rearing, no matter cattle rearing was benefit, moving around, not just having the cattle in one place, but moving around, taking them out, exploring, it's good for them, it's good for the fields, innovation. You have the guy, the musician, great, innovative music. The guy who made metal implements, innovation. The problem was, what did they use it for? We know, our tradition tells us, that they use all these things for a negative purpose. The cattle that they raised, they used it for idol worship. The music that they created, again, they used it in the context of idol worship. And the tools that they made, the sharp implements of metal, they used as weapons to hurt each other. Idolatry, idolatry, and murder. Raising cattle for idolatry, playing music for idolatry, sharpening tools for murder. This is where humanity devolved. We can look at our society in the same way. Right? We have all these wonderful advancements. The question is, what are we using them for? Are we using them for good or for the opposite of good? Are we using technology to advance society? When I say advance, to advance love and humanity and peace on earth and spirituality and higher purpose? Or do we use it for the lowest common denominator for terrible things? What do we use technology for? What do we use... I'm sure I don't have to go into details. What do we use technology for? For good or for the opposite? This is a question that we're reminded of as we read the story of, tech, of, of society advancing in those days. And we know what our sages say, that they used those advancements, which are really neutral. It's just music. But what do you use it for? For good or for the opposite? That's a question. Later on, later on the, the artisans did the Mishkan. Correct. So if you're an artist, what are you using exactly? How do you use it for a higher purpose as opposed to... And by the way, the artisans also made the golden calf. Maybe not the same ones, but theoretically you can create... No, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking your point. I'm, I'm furthering the point. In other words, I'm, I'm saying you can use your artisanship, artisanry, whatever. You can use your ability to be an artisan, your artistic ability for good or for the opposite. So with the Mishkan, they definitely channeled it for the right for the right purpose. This this reading now makes makes me understand the upcoming Noah's Ark better. Now I see because it's just a whole cycle that seems just to repeat itself. So it seems like yes, time to start ground zero. It's time, yeah. They this is when things were starting to devolve over here. Yeah, things were starting to devolve, and that's the way our sages explained it. Now let's continue. Very interesting, very interesting reading. There's a lot of names in this one, but we're gonna power through it. Now Lemech, who was generation number seven, said to his wives, Ada, said to his wives, Ada and Sila, hearken to my voice. Wives of Lemech, incline your ears to my words. Very poetic husband. For I have slain a man by wounding him and a child by bruising him. What happened was Lemech was blind and he took his son, one of his sons out for, to go hunting some animals. And instead of shooting the animal, he shot his son and, I think his son, I don't know, somebody. He killed somebody. And then somebody told him, you, kill, you shot a guy instead of, instead of the animal. And he clapped his hands and said, oh no, what did I do? And the person was standing right there and he killed the, guy, the second person who told him the news by bruising him. So one guy by wounding him with the bone arrow and the other guy by bruising him with the clap of his hands. This is what Rashi says. Um, Lemech was blind, and Tuval Cain was leading him. He spotted Cain. Oh, I'm sorry, he killed Cain! His great-great-great-great-grandfather. He spotted Cain, who appeared to him as an animal. And he killed him. As soon as he learned that it was his grandfather Cain, he clapped his hands together in anguish and clapped his son between them and killed him. So he killed his great-great-grandfather and his son at the same hunting expedition. Moral of the story, think twice before hunting when not being able to see. It's probably not a good idea to, to use weaponry and not have clear vision. Anyway, the bottom line here is that um, Lemech now 
killed Cain, the original Cain who killed his brother Abel, who was wandering for whatever it was, so now seven generations in, Lemech kills him by accident hunting and kills his own son, Tuvakayin, who was the guy that sharpened the metal implements, ironically enough, probably like the bow and arrow themselves. Um, he kills him in this horrific accident. So he asks for his bro- he asks his wives to forgive him because they said, we don't want to have anything to do with this guy. Our husband is, uh, look at this guy. He just killed two people today. So he said, my apologies. I, it was an accident. And he said like this, 24, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, in other words, if it took seven generations for Cain to be brought to justice because he only died seven generations in, then for Lemech himself, it shall be 77-fold. In other words, he killed his brother. It was premeditated murder, and it, only, it took seven generations for justice to be served. I was an accident on both fronts, so I should be at least kicked down. Uh, kicked, um, justice should be held off for 77 generations. All right, that's the end of that story. Very interesting story and uh, more elements of meaning, but we'll, we'll save it for right now. And Adam knew his wife again. Back to Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she named him Seth, or Chase. For God has given me other seed. Instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. This was a third son. And he said, kind of, repl- not that it replaces Abel, but Abel's no longer with us. We have at least now another son. Shays Seth. And to Seth also to him a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then it became common to call by the name of the Lord, and that means that's when idolatry really took off. Then that line here, then it became common to call by the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It became common to call, let me add a word, to call foreign entities by the name of the Lord. In other words, then it became common for to call anything, stone, wood, sun, moon, stars, as gods, when in fact they are just what they are and not gods. That's when um, idolatry really went viral, so to speak. Okay, Genesis chapter 5. Let's, let's, let's continue. This is the narrative of the generations of man. We're about to get a chronological um, lesson. On the day that God created man, in the likeness of God he created him. And that means that everyone comes from Adam, but where does Adam come from? Adam comes from God, and it's in the likeness of God that God created everyone. Male and female, he created them, as I mentioned before uh, yesterday, and he blessed them, and he named them man, Adam, on the day they were created. Okay, so here we go. And Adam lived 130 years, and he begot in his likeness after his image, and he named him Shea, Seth. We just read this, right, a few verses ago. Right after 120 years, he had a child, a third son, whose name was Chase, Seth. And the days of Adam after he begot Seth were 800 years. 130 plus 800, that's a lot of years. And he begot sons and daughters. We don't even know their names, but he had more sons and daughters that we don't even read about. I mean, look, the world got populated somehow. I don't want to get into the question of, well, how, how did they get second, who were they marrying the second, wasn't it siblings? I don't know. I guess we have to do the math somehow and, and, and get there, but yeah. Next. And all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years, right? 100 plus 800, 130 plus 800 is 930 years, and then Adam died. Famously, Adam was supposed to live 1,000 years. He gave 70 to King David. He saw that King David was destined to die as an infant, as a baby, so he gave 70 years of his life to the soul, he saw King David's soul would be very special. He gave 70 years of his life to King David, and so he passed away at 930, and King David lived for 70 years. And Seth lived 105 years, and he beget Enosh. We read about Enosh before. That's when idolatry took off. We're now giving the, the chrono- chronology of the, of, of the people, of the major uh, figures. And Seth lived after he begot Enosh 807 years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years, and he begot Canaan. And Enosh lived after he begot Canaan 815 years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enosh were 905 years. It's getting a little bit less each time. 930, 912, 905, still a long life, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years, and he begot Mahalalel. 
And Cain lived after he became a halal 840 years, and he got sons and daughters. And all the days of his life were 910 years. Oh, he's getting older. 905 was his dad. His son was 910 years old, and he died. And Mahalal lived 65 years, and he begot Yared. And Mahalal lived after he begot Yared 830 years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalal were 895 years, and he died. That's clearly the, less, the least so far. And Yared lived 162 years, and he begot Enoch. Chanoch. Wow, that's... Uh, he had kids late. The rest of them were at, what, 65, 70, 80, 85, 130. This guy's 162 years old when he had kids. He begot Enoch, Chanoich. And Yared lived after he begot Enoch 800 years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Yared were 962 years, and he died. And Chanoich, Enoch, lived 65 years, and he begot Methushalach, and Enoch uh, Chanoch walked with God after he began in Mr. Shalach 300 years, and he got sons and daughters. All the days of Chanoch were 365 years. And Chanoch walked with God, Enoch walked with God, he was no longer, for God had taken him. If you notice, there's a vast difference in, in years. We're talking about 900 this, 900 that, 800, whatever. And this guy, Enoch Chanoch, lives only 365 years. What's up with that? The next verse tells us, and he was no longer, for God had taken him. Basically, this guy, Hanoich, Enoch, was righteous. He was like the one righteous guy in his generation. And so God said, I don't, want you, I don't want you to see the world getting even more corrupt, so let me take you out while it's still not so bad. After he passed away, it got really bad, which directly precipitates the onset of the flood to kind of get a fresh start on humanity. So this is Enoch and how his life was shortened. And again, everything that I'm telling you is from classic commentaries as well as some Kabbalah. And all of this comes from Rashi right here. Um, oh, Ra Rashi says something a little bit differently. He was a righteous man, but he could easily be swayed to return to do evil. In other words, he was vulnerable. Therefore, God hastened and took him away and caused him to die before his time. So typically everyone has a time. This guy passed away after only 365 years. Everyone else is living eight, 900 years. It's because God saw that he needed to get out of there before it got a little bit meshuggah. Seventh reading, this will take us to the end of the portion right on time. And Mesushalach lived 187 years and he begot Lamech. And Mesushalach lived and he begot Lamech 782 years and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Mesushalach were 969 years. Again, back up to the 900s. 969, and he died. And Lamech, Lamech lived 182 years, and he begot a son. And, by the way, there's a lot of Lamechs and Lamechs. If you're wondering why names are repeating themselves, it's like, you know, in our times, we name after grandparents and great-grandparents and family names. So there, the, some of these names are being recycled for the second time. So Lamech lived 182 years, and he begot a son. This son is going to be very important. And he named his son, he named him Noah, like in Noah's Ark, Noah, saying, this one will give us rest. Noah is rest, like Menucha, rest from our work and from the toil of our hands from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Noah, it says, built farming, farming tools. So the literal meaning of what his father said is, ah, this guy I can tell, he's going to create farming tools, which will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands from the ground which God had cursed. God had made it hard. God had made the, 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 God had destined. God had cursed the earth and, and, and Adam that it's going to be hard to get food from the earth. You have to schlep it out of the earth. The sow and you have to plow and this and that and the other and sow and water. Noah came along and created tools to make it easier to grow things. So his father named him Noah, saying, Ah, oh, this one will give us rest. Noah, menucha, rest. And make it easier to get food from the ground, this ground that God had cursed. Little did he know that the deeper meaning of his name had nothing to do with farming at all. It would be that Noah gave us rest, tranquility, and hope after a world of chaos and idolatry. Right? Noah stops the destruction in totality and rebuilds humanity. 
Noah is the one that saved the world, and that is what his father could not have predicted when he named him Noah, but in knowing the story, we can say that this is the deeper meaning of his name. Verse 30, And Lamech, Noah's father, Lamech lived after he begot Noah 598 years, 95 years, and he begot sons and daughters, and all the days of Lamech were 777 years. 777. He hit the jackpot, and he died. And Noah, here we go, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Chum, and Yafet. All right, now we have the, the tree, the, the, um, the, the chronology of, of, human, of human beings, of generations, until Noah and his sons. And now we can continue with the narrative. Now that we've got the, the technical details in, Back to the story. Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when man commenced to multiply upon the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of the nobles saw the daughters of man when they were beautifying themselves and they took for themselves wives from whomever they chose. That means there was acts of immorality. Taking women that were not supposed to be taken. Married women, betrothed women, etc. There was rampant abuse and immorality that occurred. And the Lord said, Let my spirit not quarrel forever concerning man, because he is also flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. God said, You know what? I'm getting the opposite of nachas from people. I'm getting. Saurus. Saurus. Thank you. Right? I'm getting tzorahs from my, from my kids. So you know what? Maybe they have too much time on their hands. So let's cut the age, the max age limit of human beings to 120 years. Maybe with less time, they'll stay out of trouble. They'll focus on the important things and not have extra time. But it gets worse. The Nephilim, Nephilim, according to our tradition, were fallen angels. The Nephilim were on... The, it's a complicated story. The angels, these two angels said, send us down, we'll clean up earth. People can't take care of it. We're angels, we can take care of it. God sent them down and they were the worst. They fell. The higher you are, the lower you fall. The Nephilim literally means the fallen ones. They were the worst. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of the nobles would come to the daughters of man and they would bear for them. They are the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These Nephilim were giants literally and figuratively, but they were bad. They were bad news. And the Lord saw that the evil of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of his heart was only evil all the time. God saw the nature. It's not about number of years. It's not about quantity. It's quality. The actual nature of the human being had become corrupted, corrupted beyond what could be easily fixed. Sometimes you can just, reset your computer sometime maybe i'm using the wrong analogy whatever maybe the, the flood was a reset i don't know sometimes you can so let, let, let's say it this way sometimes you can restart your computer and that fixes it sometimes you have to wipe the hard drive and start again and this was that's actually i think a pretty decent analogy over here god said i try to do uh you know i try to do some tweaks you know, cut the, cut the limit of, of lifespan, cut the lifespan down a, little, a lot, um, send down some angels to help. I'm trying tweaks, you know, reboot the computer. It's not working. God saw that embedded, there's a, there's a virus, something's corrupted in the hard drive. You got to, or whatever, in the soft, you got to clean out the whole thing. And the Lord regretted that he had made man upon the earth. It was going on so well until human beings hit. I had to push the envelope. I should have stopped with the elephants. And, and he became grieved in his heart. Obviously, obviously, God's regret is not our regret. God's grief is not our grief. It's a bit different. It's more uh, metaphorical and, and anthropomorphic than literal. Nonetheless, this is the language the Torah uses. And the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I created from upon the face of the earth from man to cattle, to creeping thing, to the fowl of the heavens, for I regret that I have made them. Now, this is important. 
because it means that not only was the human being corrupt, but the human being's corruption also then infiltrated the rest of, of Earth. Animals, creepy, crawly things, birds, the exception of fish. Fish underwater, they never got corrupted. But anything above ground had corruption as well, and they also needed a reset. That's why only two of each animal was saved. Right? A few human beings were saved and two of each animal. Because even the other animals had become corrupted. I can't explain exactly, you know, scientifically how, but there was just the corruption that just was there. But Noah, of all of humanity, it was Noah who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that sets us up for next week. The great flood and how Noah saves the world, humanity, animals, etc., from utter destruction. So we end on a negative note. There's no other way to call it. It's, it ends on a negative note. Well, the ending is actually a positive note. Noah provides hope. But the beginning of this week's Torah portion, which we started yesterday because of the holiday, beginning was great. Creation, promise, beauty, light. You know, God saw it was good, all that great stuff. Then we had Adam and Eve sin. We had the homicide, uh, Cain, Cain killing Abel. Then we have idolatry. We have God regretting this whole thing that happened, uh, this whole thing called creation. And uh, it's challenging. But that's the way life is. There's no, there's no, no such thing as a clean and easy script. And honestly, <coughs> if the script wasn't dramatic, who would want to read a script? Imagine, fellow gets up in the morning, has a breakfast, goes to work, catches all the green lights, goes to work, everything works out well, comes home, and has a great evening. Where's the story? <coughs> where's the story? Like, where's the drama? Not that that's why there's drama, to have a story. But the reality is that there was drama, now there's a story. That's what we're learning. <coughs> so what's the moral of our story? Like I said yesterday, there's two paths, two narratives. Chapter one, chapter two. We can either choose to see ourselves in the image of God and see everyone else in the image of God and toe the line on that level, you know, walk down the path that we're meant to walk down. Or we can think in materialistic terms. We can think in earth, ground-based terms, right? The hunter and the gatherer, as opposed to the spiritualist. We could think of today's, right? Today's session, I mentioned. We could think of technology, and the blessings that we have, either on a higher level, chapter one of Genesis, so to speak, how can I use this implement for a higher purpose, for God, or earth, I can think of it on an earthly level, how can I use it to make more money? How can I use it to get ahead of someone else? How can I use it to become famous, to hurt someone else, God forbid? That's not, uh, that's not kosher, but it's the choice that we have. We always have a choice. <coughs> Are we gonna use the gifts for good or for the opposite? And this year, the year of Torah, let us commit to, number one, appreciating our blessings, recognizing, number two, they come from God, and therefore, number three, utilizing them for the purpose for which they were given to us, this me which is for a higher purpose. This means resources, literally resources, our gifts, our talents, our, you know, the money that we have to use it for a good cause. This also means everything that we have <coughs> means every interaction that we have, to view it through a higher lens. All right, my friends, that, that's it for this week. See you next week where um, we get into the flood. There is going to be a bridge over stormy waters or troubled waters, whatever the phrase is. That's next week as we learn about Noah's Ark. And please God, we begin our new campaign to study the Haftorah as well. I'll get you more details on Monday, which day we'll dedicate to Haftorah. Maybe we'll do it Friday. Maybe Friday will be Haftorah day. You know, we'll do like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We'll get through the Torah portion and Friday will be the Haftorah. That might be the way to do it. But stay tuned as we um, finalize that first thing next week. All right. Good, good, good. Great to see everybody. Ray, Donna, Sarah, and Sandrine. I want to wish you guys a beautiful Shabbos a meaningful Shabbos, a light-filled Shabbos, a Torah Shabbos, and a Simcha Shabbos. Celebration, happy occasions, only good things. Ray, I'm going to make it easier for you. Go, just hit the button to confirm. There you go. Aren't she starting a new course on Monday? Um, am I, that's a really great question. Am I starting a new Something course? Thursday. Thursday. Um, 
whatever, what's it called? The, the, ta- the, the Curious Tales of the Talmud? That's part two, right? We yes, that. yeah, that's going to be Thursday. Good. Thanks, thanks for reminding me. So that's next Thursday, so a week from last night, October 7th, 8 p.m. on Zoom. So if you, like, if you enjoyed part one of Curious Tales of the Talmud, and how could you have not enjoyed it? You'll love part two. It's going to be a blast. More great stories, more great lessons, and that's starting next Thursday night, the 7th. Now, we also have upcoming Hot Topics, which is a new course starting on Mondays. Not this coming Monday, but the following Monday. Hot Topics is all about modern dilemmas, Torah wisdom on modern dilemmas, technology, social debates and whatnot. It's going to get involved in lots of interesting topics. That's what we call it, Hot Topics, because literally we're covering Hot Topics. And the third course I want to mention, of course, is the JLI course, which is the one about outsmarting anti-Semitism, a phenomenal course. You want to join me for that. Trust me on this, beginning October 27th and 29th, Zoom and in person, whatever you prefer, the options will abound. All right. What about Monday in person? Is that happening for Parsha? Oh, oh, Monday in person, sure. I'm open to it. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm. I mean, I'm around now that the holidays have concluded. I am. I should be around. Give me a second. Let me just check to make sure that I am around. Sure. I don't see why not. Listen, let's do it this way. I'll send out an email. Please God. Let's say Sunday night or whatever it is. Sunday evening, maybe Sunday afternoon. And let me know if you know. I'll send that to the group. And just respond if you want to come in person, and we'll see. You know, we'll uh, we'll see if there's enough to or whoever wants to show up anyway. I'm doing it anyway, so if you want to show up, certainly do it. Just let me know if you order food, and we'll 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 make an arrangement to make it happen. You do Zoom too, yes. Always, yes, absolutely, absolutely. All right, good. I want to wish. Uh, oh, sorry. You I was gonna say you can finish yours. No, 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 no. no. I was gonna wrap up, but go. I was gonna say Mazel Tov, Donna. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. It is very exciting. Donna Mazda Mazeltov. Pleasure, pleasure. And uh, to, to continue growth and learning. All right. We'll see everybody. Talk to you soon. All right. Good Shabbos, everyone. Take care. All right.